Good morning, everyone. It is good to see uh, the pews full with people who have been in and out this summer as you travel and see family and do different things, but it is good when we get to kind of circle back around and be together and always thankful for this time of year. A couple of housekeeping things. Uh, next week, we will finish up our study through Galatians. And uh, the following week after that, we begin a new series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm both excited and slightly intimidated by the upcoming study. So I'd appreciate your prayers for that as we look at God's Word together going through Ecclesiastes. And the other thing is it relates to next week. As we wrap things up in our study of Galatians, if there are things for you that just particularly stuck out, something that really has made an impact on how you view God and His work in your life, I would love for you to tell me about it. Just send me an email, preferably early in the week, because I would like to take the thoughts that you share with me along with the time that I'll spend in preparation and try to bring some closure to our study, and it would just do my heart good to hear from you. So... If you can, send me some of your thoughts, and I would appreciate that. So, I hate to mention this, but just uh, a statement of the obvious, school is around the corner, and so uh, I know it's here. Um, And so, in light of that fact, I kind of want to get our minds into an academic mindset. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to teach you a very important Latin phrase. How many of you speak Latin? Okay, this is going to be interesting. Here's the phrase, okay? It's pronounced this way. Incurvatus insa. Got it? Let me say it again. Incurvatus insa. Now let's say it together. You ready? Incurvatus insa. Now, living in Texas, we would probably pronounce it incurvatus insa. All right? Either way, the Latin phrase means the same thing. It means Curved in on one's self. Curved in on oneself. I teach you that phrase because it was used by Augustine many years ago to describe our sinful nature. And I think it's really helpful. Our sinful nature is inherently curved inward. The Bible talks about how we lived according to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the mind. We were naturally drawn towards selfish desires, curved inward on oneself. We saw that literally being fleshed out, pun intended, with what Matt talked about last week when he talked about the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are a list of selfish desires. You can look at that list and it's obvious, right? Envy is the selfish desire to possess something that someone else has, right? Outbursts of anger that usually occur when something stands in the way of something we want. Immorality is the longing to fulfill a selfish pleasure. You can look to each and every one of those, and to a point, every single one of them are curved inward on one's self. And it's important because it stands in stark contrast to the fruit of the Spirit, which is just the opposite. It's curved outward towards others, not inward. Take, for example, love. 
Love is seeking the highest good of another person. Think about kindness. Showing favor to someone else. Think about patience. It's the ability to have personal restraint in preference to someone else. To a word. Every single one of those attributes are curved outward towards others. See, Paul is making the point that our faith in God through trusting in Christ makes an impact on how we live and relate to other people. That when we belong to God, your life is transformed by the work of the Spirit. A work that reshapes your heart from this inward curve to an outward focus. One of the shows I like to watch uh, from time to time on TV is called Forged in Fire. All right? It's kind of a man show, but anyway, I really love this show. It's where they compete with one another, uh, taking these random pieces of metal and then fashioning them into a knife blade. So, for example, they'll take something like this. This is a coil spring from an automobile, and they will literally take something like that and turn it into something like this. Something that's curved inward on oneself, made into a functioning tool. But if you've seen the show, you know it's not easy to get from here to here. Because they have to take this piece of metal and put it into a furnace and heat it so that it'll stretch. And then bend it and then hammer it and then shape it so that it turns into something like this. In a very similar way, when we look at our passage this morning, that's essentially what Paul is trying to help us understand. That the Spirit takes this life that is inherently curved inward and reshapes it for a new and different purpose. A work of the Spirit that moves us from these selfish desires to a selfless behavior. To the point that we actually... Consider the needs of someone else is more important than our own. That's the miraculous work of the Spirit in the lives of those who trust in Christ. And so as we spend time in the Word this morning, let's make sure we go to the Lord in prayer before we do. Lord, we do come to you humbly, sincerely, with a desire for you to use your Word to speak to our hearts. We recognize, as your word clearly communicates, that our lives are inherently curved inward. That apart from you, we were in fact slaves to selfish desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the mind. But Lord, you have set us free. The work of your spirit reshapes our heart for a new and different and far better purpose. From a life that is curved inward to a life that looks outward. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, help us see what that is supposed to look like so that we might live it more faithfully day to day. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this probably will be a distraction. Let me put this down here. Uh, if you would, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6 and begin reading with me in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul, continuing to write to the Galatians, says in verse 1, Brethren, so 
brothers and sisters in Christ. These are believers. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. As you know, Paul has had some pretty strong words of confrontation in this letter to the Galatians. And here he really seems to shift into some very practical instructions. He begins by describing someone who's caught in sin. Some of your translations may say overtaken. Either way, this is a fellow believer, a brother and sister in Christ who has been entangled in some kind of sinful choice. They've lost their way. They've fallen prey to the enemy's deception. We don't know the details. That's really not what's most important. What we do know is their life has been compromised by some decision to walk in a pattern of sin. And Paul's instruction is clear. He says, when you see that person, a brother or sister in Christ, caught in sin, help them find their way out. Help them find their way out. Don't sit back and watch or wait and see what happens. Don't talk about it. Gossip about what you see with other people. But pursue them. Pursue them, as he says, with a desire to restore them. That word restore here is the idea of bringing something back to its original condition. You can think about it when it relates to restoring a piece of furniture, right? When you take something that you then remove, the, just the ugly uh, decay and damage that has occurred over time so that you can bring back the beauty of that original condition. Well, I think in its context, what Paul is saying is being able to look past the ugliness of sin in another person's life to see the beauty of God's redemptive work. To look past the ugliness of sin and believe in the redemptive work of God and His power to restore. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. The question here as I read this passion is, okay, but what does he mean, you who are spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Is this kind of an elite class of, of Christian that uh, has all the answers? Is this someone who doesn't struggle so they are uniquely gifted to give advice and counsel to other people? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning, that's the one you need to avoid. Okay? To be spiritual is someone who simply walks by the power of the Spirit. This is not an elite class of Christian. This is any Christian whose life is marked by a submission to the Holy Spirit. Someone whose life is curved outward in care towards other people. After all, we're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. What is gentleness? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Someone who is led by the Spirit. Look again in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness faithfulness, and there it is, gentleness. When I hear that word gentleness, the thing that always comes to my mind is a passage in Scripture that describes the heart of God. 
And it says that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. When I hear that, it paints this portrait in my mind of the tender and compassionate care of God. A tender, compassionate care that I've experienced in my own life. And and the scripture is telling us to take that same heart of compassion and tender care that we see in God, that we've experienced in our lives, and extend it to those who are hurting. So be gentle as you seek to restore someone who has been damaged by sin. And not only be gentle, he goes on and says, and be careful lest you too be tempted. And I think in its context here, what Paul is referring to is the temptation towards pride. The wrong assumption that we are above the sin of other people. Because that kind of pride is an enemy to compassion. You may remember that Paul warned the Corinthians when he said, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. It's the understanding that but for the grace of God, there too go I. Pride is the enemy of compassion, but humility is its friend. That's why he tells us in verse 2, to bear one another's burdens. One another. It's the idea that on one day, I may be extending loving care towards you, but rest assured, there will be a day when I will need you to extend loving care towards me. Be gentle. Christian community is marked by a mutual concern and care for one another. It's what Paul describes in our passage as the law of Christ. Now, I don't know that he's used this term before. What does that mean, the law of Christ? I think he's actually kind of explained it earlier because the law of Christ is based on a law of love. Back in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the whole law can be summed up in one word in the statement, You shall love, that's the word, your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ is a law of love. So when someone is lost... In a destructive path of sin, you who are led by the Spirit, lead them to a better place. And you do that by leading them back to Christ. To help them see the beauty of His redemptive work. To remind them of His forgiveness and His grace. To help them see that all the goodness of God is built into the message of the gospel. And that's where you and I want to try to live every single day. And you're just inviting them into that place along with you. Look at how he continues in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own I think Paul, again, is just pressing the point that pride is the enemy of compassion. When someone thinks he is something, which is not true, when he is nothing, which is true, then he deceives himself because he's taking something that's not true and calling it truth. Paul is describing how pride stands in the way 
of compassion. It's an unwillingness to help others because of the belief that we are beyond needing the same kind of care. It's the idea that says, look, if you don't bother me with your problems, I won't bother me with, bother you with mine. Or, or even worse, I don't have any problems, so don't bother me with yours. Go take care of your own stuff. But this is an arrogant attitude of independence, a rejection, a denial of the call to live in biblical community. And I understand. I get the fact that this kind of community makes us wince. It, it, it makes us withdraw and say, if we're honest with ourselves, ah, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd kind of just like to live in my own little world and let people take care of themselves. See, personal freedom is a deeply held value in our culture. And the reality is that value has infiltrated the church. We really want, don't want to know what other people think. We really want to be free from the opinions of others and living according to our own beliefs. Bottom line, we want the freedom to be left alone. But that kind of freedom does not exist within true biblical community. We are called, it is a command, to bear one another's burdens. We are called to enter into hard places to seek restoration and redemption, but only with a heart that is humble enough to recognize the reality of our own sin. Paul says, examine your own life before you start pointing your finger at other people. In other words, be sure to extend the same grace to others that you know in your heart you've received from God. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Love as you've been loved. If you're going to boast in anything at all, boast in the miraculous work of God, the one in which we sing about when we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch like me. A sober self-assessment is the key to compassion towards others. It's what allows me to enter into another person's life on common ground. The understanding that I am prone to fail and I need God's grace and forgiveness just as much as the next person does. Pride is the enemy of compassion, but humility is its friend. And Paul puts it all in perspective in verse 5 when he says, For each one shall bear his own load. And we need to be careful here because we might misinterpret Paul to say, just take care of your own stuff. But that's not what Paul is saying clearly because he just told us to bear one another's burdens. He just told us when you see a brother caught in sin, run after them. So he's not telling us to take care of our own stuff. The key to understand what he's saying is to note the tense of the passage. It's future tense. Each one shall or will bear his own load. Paul is referring to a future day when each one of us will be held accountable for our own behavior. 
a day when our life will be examined based on what we did with what we've been given. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not a judgment of salvation. It is a judgment of stewardship. What have you done with what you've been given in the opportunities that the Lord has prepared before you? Listen to how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. He says, but you who... But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, do you regard your brother with contempt? And here's the key. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me. And every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, here's Paul's point. Then let each one of us give an account of himself to God. So then, in that moment, when every knee bows and every tongue confess, we will give an account of ourselves before God. And he says in verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine not to be an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. Paul is saying essentially that we will be held accountable for how we care for one another. You may remember that passage in Genesis when God confronts Cain about the whereabouts of his brother Abel, knowing full well that he had killed him. You remember the arrogant response from Cain when he said, Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, you are. You have a responsibility to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. And we will be held accountable for our actions. So instead of being an obstacle to your brother or sister, be a helping hand. Instead of having contempt, being critical in your spirit, be a person of compassion. Knowing that they need the grace of God in their life just as much as you do in yours. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, my tendency is to skip this verse because it's awkward, okay? Let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. But let me just take a moment to share with you how I feel like you do this well. I think Paul recognizes the emotional investment of a teacher. Someone who, on a consistent basis, pours out their life in the care of those that they shepherd. And he's telling the Galatians, take care of those who take care of you. And we need to remember the context with which he's saying that because the Galatian church is in turmoil. And who do you think is feeling it most? When they're surrounded by all this deception, don't, doesn't it make sense that the, the burden of that care falls on those who are trying to teach the truth? Take care of those who are taking care of you. And so I'm grateful being a church where you do that well. Because even though I may be your teaching pastor, I'm not immune to any struggle that you might face yourself, which is why I'm so blessed by your words of encouragement why I'm strengthened by your prayers. It's why I'm humbled by your gracious understanding. (laughs) 
of the ways in which I'm weak and needy. But in the end, your greatest gift to me is your willingness to share your life with me. See, it's not uncommon for churches, especially today, with all the celebrity pastors that exist in our world, to put them on a pedestal. It's what I've called the force field of ministry, where even your closest friends keep a safe distance. Which is why I've said before, I'm not real fond of being called your pastor, because somehow that title distinguishes me and sets me apart from you, and that's the opposite of what I need. I don't need to be set apart. I need to be living life with you, growing in grace together, bearing one another's burdens. You don't need anything from me that I don't also need from you. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is an important passage for maintaining a healthy perspective in our care for one another. It keeps us from being cynical. Because we will inevitably encounter those who are unwilling to be restored. People who are trapped in a pattern of sin who refuse to repent. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The deception here is the belief that I can do what I want and I won't be held accountable for what I've done. That's the deception. That I can do what I want but I won't be held accountable for what I've done. We all know that that is a a popular mantra in the world in which we live today, many times even within the church, where people can claim to be Christian, but they do not take sin seriously. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Paul explains it by highlighting what I call the law of the harvest. The law that says you will reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. In other words, if you sow seeds according to the sinful nature, it will leave a wake of destruction in your path. Immorality destroys marriages. Anger destroys friendships. Factions destroy community. Sowing seeds to the flesh will reap a harvest of destruction. The fruit you produce is a reflection of the seeds you've planted. That's the law of the harvest. Jesus describes the sobering reality in his own words in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to what he says. If this doesn't get our attention, nothing will. Words of Jesus, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 7. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. Nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. In case we didn't understand what he just says, he says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who practice a life of unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And look, this is not new information. It's repeated all throughout Scripture. In fact, it was repeated in our passage in Galatians. Look again at Galatians chapter 21. After going through the deeds of the flesh, he says there in the middle of verse 21, I forewarn you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the law of the harvest. If you sow the seeds of sin, you will reap sin's judgment. Recently watched a documentary on the Chernobyl accident in 1986 that took place in Russia. And they had a nuclear accident. And the, uh, the miniseries was very disturbing. Mature audiences only. Uh, it was painful to watch the suffering that took place. And all under the direction of the Russian government who wanted to cover up the mistake that they had made even if it cost many thousands of people their lives, and the graphic suffering that they displayed was gut-wrenching. All to protect the pride of the Russian community. And then at the very end, there was a Russian scientist knowing the truth who finally stood up to tell the truth. And when he made this statement, I put pause on the video record. I said, i got to write that down. That's good. This is what he said. He said, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt has to be paid. If you sow the seeds of sin, you will reap sin's judgment. It's the law of the harvest. But the law of the harvest has a flip side as well. Look again back at verse 8. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Those who sow to the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit. They live a life transformed by the power of the Spirit. It's saying that, that, that holiness is a harvest in the lives of those who are submitted to the work of the Spirit. Those who realize that they owe a debt, but that debt has been paid through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they are no longer slaves to sin. Which does not mean, as we've talked about before, that Christians no longer sin. That seems pretty obvious when Paul's told us in the beginning in verse 1 that when, not if, but when a brother is caught in sin, Christians still make mistakes, but our life is marked by repentance. That's the difference. Don't miss that. Christians still make mistakes, but our life is marked by repentance. A desire to walk in faithful obedience. Confessing our sins to one another so that you may be healed. Instead of walking in unrepentant sin, we know what Paul has already told us. That those who live by the Spirit will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
It's this kind of humility, recognizing our weakness and our need for the work of Christ to reshape our lives from this inward focus to an outward curve. It's that kind of humility that allows us to care for one another. Look at what he says in verse 9. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Paul is telling us, look, we have a window of opportunity in order to make an impact in the world around us, to do good to others, but especially in the household of God. And I just want to encourage you, don't be offended by the preference that we are called to give to one another. Let me explain it this way. Think about it in terms of your own home. As parents, we are called to care for our kids. Even though we are surrounded by the needs of other people in our lives, and we should help those people uh, when we should, there is nothing admirable about feeding the homeless when your own kids go hungry. The church is our family. This is our brother. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we need to understand that we only make an impact in the world when we are faithful to first care for one another. As I've thought about this passage in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, it seems as if he is trying to rally the remnant to do the right thing. Even though there are false teachers who are leading people astray, even though there are believers in the church who are believing a false gospel, in their midst are those who know the truth, those who see the deception. And I believe Paul is speaking directly to those people and he's telling them, do not remain silent. You have a shared responsibility to care for one another to gently confront sin, to humbly bear one another's burdens, to diligently do good, even in the midst of those who are doing harm. See, in a world in, of, of selfish independence, the church is called to be unique in this world by caring for one another, to live within biblical community, pressing, pressing into each other's lives with loving care, living distinct from the world around us. Especially when things are going so wrong in so many places, it is the responsibility of the church to do what is right. In a world filled with deceptive compromise, we cannot remain silent. But it doesn't begin with pointing fingers at other people. It begins with looking in the mirror. It begins in the church. We cannot care for the world if we are not caring for each other. Jesus teaches us that. He tells us, they will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. That is your primary witness in the world around us. If you don't believe me, turn to John chapter 17. Even if you do believe me, turn there anyway. <laughs> John chapter 17, and I'll finish up with these words. This is the what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is... Some of his final words before he goes to the cross. He's praying in such a way that his disciples can hear what he's saying. And I want you to listen to the words that he speaks. Beginning in verse 20. John chapter 17 verse 20. 
Jesus says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that you sent me. And that you loved them even as you loved me. The thing that I want you to notice, and you can look at it over and over again. And what you're going to see is that Jesus did not pray for the world. Look. He did not pray for the world. He prayed for believers who live in the world. You see, the church is God's plan A for revealing the redemption of His hand to the world. I think we talk a lot about how we should pray for America and pray for unreached people groups, and that's fantastic. But don't forget the fact that the answer to that prayer is in this room. The answer to the prayer of how we impact the world around us is the work of God in His people, the church. And if we can't do what's right in this place, forgive us for ever considering making an impact in the world around us. The priority of our prayers for the church, because the church is God's plan A for the world. The priority of our prayer is our, our care is for one another, because we're only going to impact the world if we are faithful to care for one another. Until the power of the gospel is lived out here, it will be a meaningless message out there. And in my own opinion, I really believe the enemy is less concerned about making the world bad than he is about making the church ineffective. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's putting a close to his letter is he's looking at all the things that have happened in this Galatian church, the warnings, the confrontations, but in the end he's saying those who, you know, to know, those who know what is true, those who see the deception, you cannot remain silent. You have to come alongside of each other. We are not called to live in selfish independence. That was a life apart from Christ, a life that curved inward. You have been changed by the work of the Spirit. Your life has been reshaped so that you move from an inward focus to an outward focus. So enter into each other's lives so that you may grow in grace together. And when you do that, then the prayer of Christ will be fulfilled and the, Lord, the world will be impacted because of it. Because the church is God's plan A for revealing His redemptive hand to the world. So we got five minutes. And so I'd like for us to close with some application of what we just said. In small groups, I want you to come together and we're just going to spend some time praying. Pray out loud. It's okay. He can hear each and every voice. And it's not confusing to him. And it actually is a beautiful aroma in the halls of heaven as the angels see the people of God gathering together. And I want you to pray specifically for this church and for every church that proclaims the message of the gospel. That we may live faithfully in our care for one another. That we may live faithfully in our desire to walk in obedience so that our light might shine brightly in the world around us. 
I say that also knowing that in your groups, there may be those who have something specific in their life that is heavy on their heart this morning. And I don't want to look past that. So if that's you, without a long description, in fact, let me give you a pointer. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. And maybe what you simply say is, I need you to pray for me to experience the hope of Christ in my life. I need for you to pray for me to experience the joy of Christ in my life. The Lord knows the details, and then we can pray for one another. So I don't care how big your groups are. Just gather together in enough of a group that you can hear each other and pray together. Pray for this church body. Pray for our love for one another. Pray for any needs that might exist within your group. And then I'll close this in prayer when we're done. Okay? All right, let me close our time, please. Um, you know, I love the time that we spend together every Sunday when we worship. And Brian does a great job in leading that team to lead us in worship I'm also convinced that what we just did is as or more worshipful than any song we might ever sing, and it is echoed through the halls of heaven in powerful, powerful ways. And I would pray that we would be a people who do this consistently, and so when we think about what it means to press into each other's lives, I would say, number one, we do this a lot with each other, for each other, together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So with that in mind, let me dismiss this. If you would go ahead and stand and let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for this church family, a family that really does love each other well. And yet we also know there are places that we can grow and uh, just continue to grow in faithfulness in what it looks like to live as a body of believers who are first caring for one another uh, as we then make an impact in the world around us. Father, I pray as we begin this uh, fall semester and some of the opportunities to engage in life and community, that it would be something that might move people to uh, consider being in a small group or being involved in a Sunday morning ABF or something just to dive a little deeper into community. And so, Lord, maybe this morning that they would be prompted to pursue that. And Father, for all of us, I just pray that we live consistent in a life of where we bear one another's burdens. We extend the grace to each other that we have received from you, that we forgive as we've been forgiven. We love as we've been loved. And may we grow in the love that you have for us as we share that with the world around us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.